Hello, this is Manny Ramos, your host of Rise Up, Real Issues and Stories of Every One of Us podcast. But first, let me talk about who we are. I'm Manny Ramos, a board member of PNAA and a past president of the Philippine Nurses Association of Central Florida. I'm a professor of nursing at Valencia College in Orlando and an adjunct faculty at William Patterson University. With me today is my co-host, Mindy Ofiana. Mindy? Hello, Manny. Hi. Welcome, everyone. I'm Mindy Ofiana, Legislative Committee Chair for PNAA, Corresponding Secretary for PNAA Foundation, and past president of PNA Southern California. Before my recent retirement, I served as both as Chief Operations Officer and Chief Nursing Officer at one of the medical centers owned by KPC Group of Companies. We are honored to join us today on Rise Up, Dr. Carlos Erwin Oronce. He's a general internist and fellow in the Advanced Health Services Research Fellowship at the VA Greater Los Angeles Healthcare System. He is pursuing a PhD in Health Policy and Management. He's a fellow in the Specialty Training and Advanced Research Fellowship at the UCLA David Griffin School of Medicine. His research spans racial and ethnic disparities in health outcomes and quality of care and evaluating the impact of policies and interventions to address the social determinants of health and understanding the impact of value-based models of care for under-resourced patients and communities. Dr. Oronce is the president-elect for the Philippine Community Health Association, also known as Filcha. He is the author of the recent published opinion piece in Stat News entitled Health Disparities for Philippine in Healthcare Are Disguised by Data Aggregation. Good evening, Dr. Oronce. Welcome to Rise Up. Thank you for having me, and feel free to, to call me Carlos. I'm very happy to be here with y'all. Oh, Hi, yes. Carlos. So uh, what compelled you to become a physician? Yeah, so, you know, I think like many um, physicians, I grew up really interested in science. Um, and I also kind of felt compelled, you know, to, to help people. And I think those are like the two basic kind of guiding things. But um, my career path kind of um, was sort of a, a little windy in that um, actually through college, um, I struggled with the sciences. I actually didn't do very well in school and in undergrad and in college because the sciences were like so difficult for me. So biology chemistry. Uh, I, I didn't do very well in those classes. And I actually kind of um, was struggling with wanting to pursue policy and um, civil rights. And I was actually more drawn to um, advocacy, especially in Asian American politics and um, thinking about um, Filipino American issues as well. And I almost didn't become a doctor, um, but it, it was um, actually um, in in the third year of college. After after my third year, I actually did an internship um, for an Asian American civil rights organization called OCA, and um, that's when I became really drawn to to policy. And I thought, you know, maybe this is the world that I want to go into. Um, 
And then I ended up going to AmeriCorps um, in Philadelphia right after college. So I joined, um, you know, this volunteering group. I served in a federally qualified health center, helping patients get access to medication because they didn't have good prescription drug coverage or that they were uninsured. And thinking about how the patients that I was talking to, how sort of policies had failed them, how these other aspects of their social lives like not being able to go to the doctor because the transportation was actually influencing their care. Like whether they got good care or not was based off of these things that were sort of out of their control and really shaped by these other issues. And then that's when I was like, maybe I do want to be a physician because I want to be somebody that like helps address some of these like gaps that lead to these really bad outcomes for patients that feel very, very preventable. Mm. Um, and and I, I found that I, I absolutely, even though I like loved thinking about policy and like sort of those structural organizational things, I also just as much loved um, talking to patients and I think almost bearing witness to whatever was going on in their lives. And I think that was like really, really important to me. So that's a that's a very long winded way of saying sort of how I ended up uh, getting into medicine. I see. So what population group did you work with at AmeriCorps? So in AmeriCorps, I was in South Philadelphia. Um, and the interesting thing about South Philadelphia is it is an incredibly diverse place. Um, with regards to Asian American communities. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my patients were Indonesian, Vietnamese, um, and Cambodian. Mm -hmm. um, and so I often worked very closely with a lot of the translators and really got to know the patients and their stories because the translators were so close actually to the, to the patients and, and got to be treated like they were family. Um, and so the, the, the community there in South Philadelphia was just so warm. And I, I remember one lady who every time she would come pick up her medication from my office, um, she would bring me a bag of fruit. Um, and it was just her gesture of saying thank you, um, even though she didn't, um, you know, speak English very well. Um, you know, we, we kind of interacted, um, you know, in sort of brief words and like sentences, but then she would always smile and give me a bag of fruit when she picked up her medication and it was always so nice to see her. Oh, wow. So this was in Philadelphia. Now you're still very young and I'm trying to think how <laughs> younger were you then when you were in Philadelphia working, working with this uh, minority group? I was uh, 22 at the time. Wow. So this was uh, 2009, 2010. Yeah. Mm, I see. So, Dr. I mean, Carlos, I'm, I always call you Dr. Aronze. So how was your experience as a physician during the COVID-19 crisis? Yeah, so um, my experiences were, I think, atypical compared to other physicians mm. because... Um, you know, like you had mentioned, I, I was in the middle of fellowship. So my fellowship is, um, uh, was mostly a research interdisciplinary policy fellowship. Um, and, 
my clinical time was actually about 10% clinical time. Mm -hmm. And so when the pandemic started, I just remember thinking this sort of uneasy feeling of like, oh man, the ICUs are going to get overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. The patients are going to like, you know, come in, the volume is going to be really high. So I, I, I signed up to be on backup um, for uh, uh, the VA hospital. And somehow, fortunately, the VA did not need backup hospitalists. Um, but I was I was prepared, um, if needed, to, to be a hospitalist. Um, and so I was constantly, like, keeping up with, like, how to manage COVID, I was talking to a lot of my friends who were doing clinical work full time. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I was trying to see sort of where, like in the country, the, the trends were going in the wrong direction and what that might mean for Los Angeles. Um, but ultimately, what ended up happening is the VA really needed doctors mm -hmm. who could do um, testing. Uh -huh. And that's where the real demand was. Um, because uh, they were actually able to, in the hospital, stand up um, an entire unit that was um, staffed by um, advanced practice practitioners. Uh -huh. So they had a lot of NPs and PAs yeah. that were staffing it. Um, and so it was able to kind of multiply their kind of um, ability to take care of hospitalized patients. But they needed more supervision of, of staff in the testing tent. Mm -hmm. So in summer 2020 now... Um, I, uh, I was asked to do testing. And so we were seeing a lot of patients when I was there. I, I, I was still there like on Wednesdays. Uh -huh. and, um, this was the second surge now. And so right. there'd be patients coming in. Um, a lot of them would be like mildly symptomatic. Um, but my job was just to quickly assess them and see if they needed to be sent to the emergency room or, or we could test them in the testing tent, which was in the parking lot at the VA. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. So during that summer of 2020, when you were seeing these patients in the community, um, are you able to recall what, uh, what was there like a, a, was there a pattern as far as the population groups that are more affected? I, I know LA is, is, is quite diverse, but was there like a uh, an overwhelming pattern of uh, population groups that are more affected than others. Yeah, so one of the things about the VA patient population for those, you know, in the audience that don't know when when those who are patients of the VA come there that they um, have to have like some sort of service connection is what it's mm -hmm. called. So okay. either they've served a certain amount of time or they have certain injuries or something that qualifies them to, to receive their care in the VA. And oftentimes the VA is a safety net in the communities where they're located. That is, they take care of patients who um, might be low income, who don't have as many, um, you know, uh, financial resources, and so the VA is, is there for, for, for any vet who, who qualifies in a service connected. And so in Los Angeles, we had a lot of vets who were also um, essential workers, mm -hmm. um, you know, especially the, those who were like, you know, less than 65, 70, you know, who weren't retired, 
um, a lot of people still were um, uh, working and they tended to be essential workers. Um, I remember testing uh, somebody uh, early on in that summer who mentioned to me that um, he was on a bus and there, there was somebody that was coughing and not wearing a mask. Mm. And so he was just concerned because he had um, a runny nose as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, he, you know, I was I was asking more questions and it sounded like it was a crowded bus. Oh. And for me, I was like, oh, my gosh, how are they still packing so many people in the bus? And he was saying, like, we all had to go to work. That's what he was telling mm. me. Everyone had to go to work. There was, you know, there was sick leave mm-hmm. you know technically but it was very difficult for people to feel comfortable enough to take off work because they felt maybe that the rest of the employees would be mad at them or their mm-hmm. boss would be mad at them mm-hmm. and so essential workers were a huge part and i think um a lot of patients that that we saw also came from south la uh-huh. and and if you think about sort of the geography of los angeles mm-hmm. south la uh, tends to be a historically black community mm-hmm. and um w- which which suffered extremely high rates of covid and so that was another thing that that we sort of saw was yes there were you know racial disparities of who was getting covid and and i saw that in in um in the testing tent. Uh-huh. And then um, one other thing that, that I also noticed was um, that there was also people who lived with other people. Mm-hmm. And that was also a cause of concern okay. for why people were getting tested. Right. So right. basically living with family, like, yeah. you know, they had multiple people in the household and they couldn't, you know, socially distance. Mm-hmm. And they were, they would tell me it would be like them and, um, actually another family that that um that their family friends with but because this person lost their job they couldn't afford to pay mm-hmm. rent and so they were just housing these this family friend for a little bit and so you have two families in, in an apartment that really only fits one family and one person might be sick everyone tries to stay away but you know it's hard to do uh-huh. mm-hmm. so uh carlos what do you think how do you think the va responded to this issues that you just mentioned yeah, so I think the the VA um, has has responded uh, particularly well to addressing COVID, at least within Los Angeles. And so I had seen the rollout of the testing tents happen really, really quickly uh-huh. um, and uh, pretty efficiently. And I know that. Um, you know, I should also qualify my comments and say that, you know, my views represent my views alone and not of the Department of Veteran Affairs or the U.S. government. Um, and, you know, there was there was some issues with with masks, but everyone has masks and PPE at the VA. I know that some of that was in the news. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think um, in terms of other aspects of the response to COVID, I was incredibly um, impressed with how they were able to have backup hospital medicine mm. services. And so like, I was like third or fourth line and they didn't even need to go all the way back oh. to the third or fourth line. Cause they, nobody really got sick. I like see. the attending physicians didn't get sick. Um, the other thing that I, I thought was so impressive about the VA was the vaccine rollout. Mm. And so 
like the rest of the country, they prioritize based off of age first and comorbidities. Um, but what I saw in some of the data was that there was actually no racial or ethnic disparities in who got mm-hmm. vaccinated in the VA system. And I think that was incredible. And like a story that not many people hear about, mm-hmm. you know, we hear about the inequities in vaccination across America, but this is like a really great example of where the VA was able to achieve equitable rollout of, of, of the vaccine. Um, which is really, really impressive. So, Carlos, in your article in the Stat News, uh, health disparities for Filipinos in uh, healthcare are disguised by data aggregation. You mentioned that the absence of disaggregated COVID-19 data for Asian Americans has contributed to these disparities and hindered an, equ- an equitable response for Filipinos. Um, can you talk more about this for our Rise Up listeners and viewers? Yes, thank you so much, Manny, for that question. That is such an important question and I think really speaks to a central issue that affects Filipino-American health. And I think it's, it's this being disguised in the data. And so what we mean by that is, so in the U.S., for Filipino Americans for Philams data are collected um, based off of of one's self-reported race mm-hmm. or how healthcare providers or healthcare system people like the medical assistant or the secretary record your race for the for the medical record and so because Asian Americans include Filipinos and Philams and and so on like we get lumped in with other communities such as chinese japanese korean and that means that when you look at data for covid and you look at asian americans asian americans tend to um you know experience covid um, at, at lower rates are hospitalized less lower mortality and so one can then think oh Well, you know, Philams are doing well. They're they're not dying of COVID. Um, the problem is, though, when you take a category as broad as Asian American that covers a huge continent, you know, mm-hmm. many many countries that have very different histories of why they immigrated to the U.S. and different healthcare systems at home and and all of that. Um, you obscure any of the underlying differences. And so everyone gets pulled into an average. And so I I should say that the category of Asian American Mm -hmm. came about in the 1960s as a way to foster solidarity across Asian American communities Mm -hmm. that faced um, stigma, that faced xenophobia um, and a lot of you know essentially anti-asian hate um, and, and and uh and violence and so this was a way for people to band together to exercise political power and strength and say that our voices will be heard mm-hmm. and so that was a good thing however the downside is now 
you know, if, if Filipinos are doing worse in terms of health outcomes uh, compared to the rest of Asian Americans, that gets hidden in the data that get collected. And, and we saw that with, with COVID-19. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll say that the, the, the National Nurses United report was huge. And I, I'm so glad that other groups were, you know, uh, looking at that information. I mean, the, the stat there is that even though uh, Filipinos make up 4% of the U.S. nursing, nursing workforce made up 26% of nurses who died in the United mm-hmm. States. And, and we would have never known that if it weren't for folks who, who were willing to, um, to, to find that data. And I'll say one more thing on this, and that's part of the story of data aggregation mm-hmm. is that it reinforces this idea of what's called the model minority myth, that Asians and Asian Americans are the good minority, mm-hmm. that, uh, that we uh perform well in terms of our income is good because we work hard that our education rates are good because you know we put our head down and we 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 have a strong work ethic that's because of our culture but that ignores the fact that certain immigration policies allowed certain immigrant families to come to the US mm-hmm. and so that's what shaped that 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 perception um, but it was really, really useful for, I think, broader American culture to help make sense of race relations as if they had a, a good minority. Mm-hmm. And so that really reinforced um, this idea that Asians don't have problems and that extended to health. And so we there, there's a common misperception that that, um, you know, Asians don't have health problems. But you look at you look at the disaggregated data for communities and you see Philiams with with high rates of, of hypertension, diabetes, and and um, you know we don't receive money if there's if there's if there's no recognition of the problem because of data aggregation, there's no belief that there is a need. If there's no mm-hmm. belief that there is a need, public health and policymakers don't give the money to address the problem. Mm-hmm. If we don't address the problem, those differences in health outcomes continue. And so that's what I meant when data aggregation directly contributes to the persistence of those disparities. So why has the impact of COVID-19 on Philippines and other Asian communities has been ignored, even though we make up the fastest growing racial groups in the United States? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question. I think that really also speaks to this idea of um, the model minority myth mm-hmm. and and the absence of of data. And I think um, you know it's it's just it's it's a evergreen issue that has been going on for years now. It it, it came before COVID nineteen. Um, some of the scholars that I've always kind of admired from afar have been talking about data disaggregation as like the first step that is necessary to ensure that, um, you know, Filipinos, Filipinas, Filipinx, you know, people, their issues are actually made aware. You know, if, if the NIH, the National Institute for Health, doesn't even recognize our community mm-hmm. as a community worthy of further research, mm-hmm then that means that 
intervention, things like hypertension programs, you know, um, education programs around uh, diet, exercise that maybe work um, for other communities. We're not studying if they work in our communities or if there are ways to make it better. And so like that, that contributes, you know, directly to, to the to the lack of, of attention on, on the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know if I completely answered your, your question, okay. so feel free to, to, to follow up there. Right. So um, so I hear this, that, that it's really very, very important to uh, obviously, you know, aggregate the data and, and get more information about the Filipino community. Um, how have they been affected by the COVID? Um, and I think it goes beyond COVID moving forward, right? Uh, if, if we will continue to somehow track the data and, and follow up. Uh, do you have any idea? Um, I do know, for example, that in Hawaii, they they do uh, segregate their data, right? Um, you know, there's, data, there's data for Filipinos, Koreans, Japanese, uh, Japanese-Americans, you know. Um, is that true for the mainland USA? So in some places, um, disaggregated health data are available, but they're very, very difficult to come by. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, in California, um, the, the data that is disaggregated for Asian Americans, um, was only available from like, from requests. Um, so, so Nanez Ponce, mm-hmm. um, helped, um, get access to the data because she, she had asked for it. Um, and I think that was a, um, a key thing was, was, um, being able to ask policymakers to release the data. But if that data isn't just out there, like people aren't going to know. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you want data to be as in the hands of community members right. and like as easily accessible as possible. Cause you know, they're the ones that are most affected by it. You know, for me, like somebody who also is like in, in like an academic medical mm-hmm. center, like I shouldn't be the person who has supreme rights over looking at somebody else's mm-hmm. data. This belongs to the community. Mm-hmm. And so California, you know, actually actually has a, a law on the books that they're supposed to disaggregate data in the future. Um, but I believe it doesn't get implemented until something like 2025. Mm-hmm. Um, but the more that we can have the disaggregated data where we can say for hypertension mm-hmm. or for COVID, what is the prevalence or the proportion of, of people in you know the Filipino community or the Korean community or the Japanese community that has high blood pressure, that is knowledge that needs to be available um, for everyone. And so I think California is taking the lead by by having an actual policy. Um, I mean Hawaii has it has it immediately available. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know other states kind of have to follow as well and, and do the same in order to to make sure that this doesn't happen again. You can see right. that if you don't have data in real time, you can't react in real time. Mm, I mean, right. people have already died. Yeah. You know, people in our community have already died and, and we don't, 
now we have the data, but that doesn't help the people who have already died. Right, <laughs> right. So we are both executive board members of Philippines AO Community Health Association. I joined just last year, it's been formed. Can you tell us when, how, and why did it get started? Yeah, so this all started uh, last year when um, I, I think the sort of groundwork was laid when uh, Dr. Nunez Ponce, um, actually now one of my, my mentors, um, started to circulate um, a letter with, um, I think that was also co-written co by uh, Dr. Ryan Huerto, who is at, um, he's a family medicine physician in Oakland now, as well as um, Aaron Manala Pedro, who is a PhD student in public health at UCLA. And and they actually have written about this as well, um, and, and other people in the community about how concerned they were that there were all these news stories that, that um, you know, Filipinx, Filipino-American uh, nurses were dying at such high rates Yet in the National Academy Medicine report on the ethical guidelines for how to give out vaccines that among priority populations, mm -hmm. philiums were not there. Mm -hmm. And so how is it that, you know, more than six months into the pandemic, we don't really have a good idea of who's dying from, from COVID because the data aren't there, but you have news story after news story after news story in places like Stat News, in NPR, in CNN, NBC News, mm -hmm. where they're interviewing Philiam nurses who are saying people are dying. You know, one of the first nurses to die in Los Filipino. Angeles was Filipino at, 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 at um, I believe, Hollywood Press. Uh, Med yeah. Center. And yeah. And so when when that letter got circulated that started i think to get energy and consciousness and awareness within um the the community because it, it got it was originally you know started by by people that then ended up in um uh other clinicians and, and other circles um and that was submitted to to the national academy of medicine and then two months later i i had heard um Nines speak on a panel with uh, Don Operario, uh, who is um, the director of the Philippine Health Initiative for Research and um, I believe Scientific Training mm -hmm. First, Brown First is the name of the, of the group. And um, they're based at Brown School of Public Health. And so he was a panelist, Nunez was a, was a panelist, and so was um, RJ Tagweg, who is a sociology PhD student um, at UC Davis. And so I heard them speak on the experiences of Philliams in COVID, and it was incredible to me, um, you know, hearing them speak. Um, so, so Dr. Operario and Dr. Ponce had talked about it from like a public health quantitative side. And then I had learned that RJ was doing these, what he called cuentujans, which were just oral histories throughout the pandemic, talking about sort of the experience of people, um, uh, in the film community who were um, experiencing hardship, you know, whether it was because their loved ones were working on the front lines, whether they were having, you know, trouble with school because, 
they were they were um, home from college and they weren't connected to people or they they realized that other loved ones were in the hospital mm-hmm. now with with covid and so there were people all across the country who were expressing sort of frustration grief sadness mm-hmm. around covid realizing it was affecting the filipino community and you know i was i was asking uh, Nina's like is there any venue that brings people together to talk about these issues mm-hmm. more nationally um and you know the, the obama administration or um excuse me the biden administration is is going to be coming in in a few months i think that you know there's an opportunity to to potentially um raise awareness around sort of our community with um a, a political administration a presidential administration that might be more sympathetic to sort of the concerns that that we have especially when they when they appointed um Marcela Nunes Smith who is a is a physician to be part of the COVID-19 um, task force for the transition um uh, of the of the Biden administration and so that's what got the ball rolling mm-hmm. and um you know Nenez has a huge network um, in the in in the film community as well, and and she sent um, you know emails out to to people, um, and we wanted to make sure that we were reaching out um, across all clinicians as we were thinking about how to respond to sort of you know the the Biden administration. So we reached across obviously to nurses, other physicians, people who were like outside of of those two fields like physical therapy occupational therapy we were also reaching out to traditional public health practitioners so people who are epidemiologists mm-hmm. and we got everyone in a room and this is how um you know the the philippinex ao covid19 task force began we wanted to also involve people outside of health and so we bought, brought in Lizelle Tanglao who was yeah. in charge of the COVID-19 response for Philpro the Filipino Young Leaders program um Mindy we, we brought you and <laughs> we brought uh Jenny Aying um and so we wanted to get everyone to brainstorm together and I think that's where the strength in numbers and strength in different perspectives comes from is you have everyone in the room thinking about you know how how to respond and so Um, I had worked with um, Alex Adia, who's who's a, mm. an MPH, um, and uh, we we drafted this letter in response to uh, Marcela Nunez Smith, and we worked on it for actually a couple of weeks, and and really wanted to get consensus, and we sent it out in January after getting like 500 signatures within a day or two um, from across the country, and that was incredibly impressive, and 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 we fired that off. And that's that's really sort of the origin story of of how Filtra began, and and we 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 went from there to to think about how to to magnify our impact, how to uh, do other programs, how to continue the pipeline of, of clinicians and students who are interested in addressing, you know, the the health of of, of the Philam community. So it was it's been an incredible um, experience to to see this grow over the past year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Carlos what we know is that for people who have um more comorbidity right like hypertension obesity heart disease uh they were the population group that had higher risk 
right, of uh, dying from COVID if they got infected. So how does that relate then, or what do we know uh, about the Filipino community and and the Filipino nurses? Because um, they are the frontliners. They were the ones who were directly working uh, with these COVID patients. Um, do we know anything yet about about uh, the Filipino nurses' risk or, or the Filipino patients or population group in general? Are there studies out there looking into that at this point? Yeah, so um, that is a very, very important question. And I, I think there are kind of multiple ways to look at it. Uh, first, because we don't have disaggregated data, it's hard to have really firm, consistent conclusions about philium health. But I will say that um, in the places where disaggregated data have existed, we have had really good insights on, on philium health. So one is the California Health Interview Survey, which um, actually Dr. Nunez Ponce um, helped start and um, is a survey in California that asks people about their health risk factors. Um, and that's how we were able to know that uh, philems experience um, higher, higher odds of um, hypertension and diabetes. And that was um, an article that was published in the American Journal of Public Health, I think two years ago, actually by, by Alex Adia. And um, there's another great group out of New York, um, the Center for the Study of Asian American Health, or CISA, and they've done um, some disaggregated data work as well. And, and I believe some of their investigators have done work in the community, working on high blood pressure in the philam community. Um, there's another really important study that looks at, um, let me take a step back. So I'm, I'm a big um, proponent of understanding the social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. What are, you know, aside from physical drivers of health or physical risk factors, things like smoking mm -hmm. and um, uh, obesity and um, not being able to like exercise, like those are the traditional risk factors mm -hmm. we think of. But if we look more upstream mm -hmm. and we look at sort of why people smoke or why they might have a higher weight, there's, there's all these social factors. And I think that's a part of what is going on with the philam community, especially among, um, among nurses. And so there was one really important study published um, last year uh, from uh, Jen Nazarino and Catherine Sinisa Choi and Alex Adia. So um, I'm sure many people are familiar with Catherine Sinisa Choi's work. Um, her work actually influenced me in college. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know anything about um, the, the history of nurses, Filipino nurses, um, until I read her book. Mm -hmm. And it's still on my bookshelf. It's underlined heavily. Um, and so when I saw this paper that she wrote last year, um, I, I, my attention was immediately drawn. Mm -hmm. And so it speaks to the power of, of social determinants of health because what they looked at is nurse burnout during the, um, not during the pandemic, it was all before the pandemic, but they looked mm -hmm. at nurse burnout and who changed jobs and who didn't comparing the philam nurses and white nurses mm -hmm. and um you know what they found is philam nurses tend to be in inpatient settings they tend to be in the icu settings 
they are more likely to stay in their current job mm-hmm. um, even when they are burned out compared to white nurses who tend to go into outpatient settings. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, the pay is better, but what, what, what does that pay? You know, why, why do people want higher household income? Why do people need more income? Mm-hmm. Maybe they're sending remittances mm-hmm. back home. Maybe they're supporting their parents back home. Maybe they're helping put um, their sister's son through college in the Philippines. And so that's like another part of the story that we couldn't, I mean, people can't really find good information on, but that's, that's part of it. Mm-hmm. If, if, if more people depend on you, mm-hmm. I mean, you're going to be working in these tougher situations, but the pay is better. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it's more stressful. And you, we saw that in the in the stories of, of Filipino nurses in the pandemic. I mean, I just remember hearing the story of one Filipino nurse who ran into a room when somebody was coding and she didn't put on PPE. Um, and that was, you know, speaking to her dedication to her patient. But it's the stressors of these jobs that increase the risk. So when people are more stressed out, they have higher risk of high blood pressure, higher risk of diabetes. Um and this is all because, you know, they might be working in a high stress nursing job that that was available and brought them here, but they have to support family back home. And so, it's, I mean, I'm, it's all connected with some of this this history that that, you know, Ren um, probably discussed last week. Um, and, and then I think with with um, other risk factors like uh, hypertension, um, we, we definitely need more more studies. There's there's been a few large epidemiological studies like that I believe are published in the Journal of the American Heart Association that looked at um, the number of years of life lost due to premature um, uh, coronary heart disease and stroke, and they were really high in in the in the Philam community, much higher than than other Asian ethnic groups. And um, you know we we can say that this is also due to um, diet, but you know, why is the diet bad you know, or, you know, bad, maybe the diet is the way that it is because American processed foods, you know, was, are available in the Philippines and became popular. And so we have to think about some of that colonial history, um, as well. And, um, you know, I think in terms of some of the cultural factors that might also be contributing, you know, I, I, I'm, I was moved very much by, by one of my, my friends, um, work. So, um, uh, Dr. Antonio Moya is a neurologist here in Los Angeles. Um, and he was in my fellowship the year ahead of me. And he did these, these focus groups with, uh, Philams here in Los Angeles. And he found that, you know, the, 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 the power of Bahala Na, yeah. you know, and it is, was was a major factor in why people didn't call nine one one, you know, um, when they were having a stroke. Mm-hmm. And so that that inspired him to develop a a, a commercial that was on TFC, um, that encouraged people to to uh, you know call the ambulance mm-hmm. if you're having if you're having stroke symptoms, you know, don't wait. Time is time is brain. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, you know there's. There's multiple reasons why these health disparities exist, but we need more research um, in order to have a better, better understanding than what we have now. I want to go back to the um, uh, what you mentioned about a, a while ago, a letter that we sent to the 
COVID-19 Advisory Board for the Biden-Harris transition, right? And I know that PNAA is one of the 500 signatories that we got within 200. Do you think we achieved the intent of the letter? That's a that's another really good question. You know, I think in terms of the specific act in that letter, you know, we we wanted there to be somebody from the the Philam community. Um, you know, specifically, uh, if we ever got to that stage, uh, I was going to say we need to put up somebody from PNAA or recommend somebody from PNAA to to be a member of that task force. Mm-hmm. That was something that a lot of us were talking about, and it needs to be a nurse. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, they we didn't get a response, and that was really disappointing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we weren't able to achieve those short term goals of getting somebody, you know, on the board um, of the of the transition, uh, the task, the health equity task force, um, or even, you know, a, a, a acknowledgement that this was affecting the film community disproportionately. But I think, despite that, I think what resulted afterwards is our community came together across professional groups, across people from different parts of the country to strategize how then can we amplify our impact and prevent this from happening in the future. Um, and I think, you know, our eyes on what what can we change in future policy? You know, one of the things is we can we can implement data disaggregation as one one piece of it. Um, we can um, continue to advocate for, you know, that PPE union protections, mm-hmm. nursing nursing unions were one of the biggest factors that helped um, actually ensure patient safety. So that was an, another major thing. Um, and you know, as we've talked about in Filcha, you know, the next step we need to make sure that people are interested in public health in the Philam community. Um, I, I I wear a hat as a clinician, but also as a public health researcher. And so as a clinician, I love taking care of patients and I love thinking about what are ways that we can improve, you know, Philam health and my public health researcher side says, how do we get more clinicians? You know, it's important to be at the bedside, but how can we get more clinicians to think about public health to amplify the impact and the issues in our community so that they can get heard? And so you know, as, as we've kind of talked about in Filcha, one of, one of the ways to do that is, is to, to invest in our young people. Mm-hmm. And I think there are people in, um, you know, in college now who are interested in nursing, but are also interested in public health, who are interested in things like being a midwife and being a physician and also going into public health. And if we can get some of those bright minds in the right places, and give them leadership skills mm-hmm. and help get them, you know, into the next administration, then I think we were, you know, we're able to, to accomplish a lot of the things that, that, you know, we, we wanted to do with, with that original letter for, for the next, you know, big crisis that might affect our, our community. So Carlos, um, for the agenda to disaggregate data and get more information about the Filipino community, um, what do you think 
it's the biggest hurdle hurdle right now. And um, which agency do you think we need to somehow uh, reach out to uh, among 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 the agencies? Who do you think would be the priority agency to to approach re- re- regarding um, aggregating data and and to get what uh, what we need as Filipinos, Filipino Americans? Yeah. I think I think health and human services is like the big one, right? Because health and human services is the the department under which Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services lives, the mm-hmm. CDC lives, mm-hmm. um, the Health Resources and Services Administration lives. And so if HHS can have a policy, you know, then that is a huge huge impact. Mm-hmm. I think that is also though, while that's important, we also have to think about states. And so for, for, you know, places like different PNAA chapters, think about what's going on in your state. Mm-hmm. So California um, was able to, to pass a law that, um, you know, has data disaggregation. I think it's AB like one, one seven twenty six, but if if different maybe other chapters around the country look at AB 1726 and figure out is there someone in your state that's working on a piece of legislation that looks like that then maybe your state can can make it a requirement that healthcare systems healthcare providers ask people about their race and ethnicity in a in a disaggregated way they ask them what specific community you belong to so I think I think that those those are very important kind of policy levers to act on. Dr. Aronse, you know, uh, Philippine Nurses Association of Southern California partnered with you last June of 2021 as volunteers with your community coalition COVID-19 vaccine pop-up event. Was that successful, or what are still the challenges of vaccination for our and boosters? And for the uh, uh, vaccinations for ages five to eleven. Yeah, so that was actually one of my favorite events last year um, of being involved in, and I think really speaks to the the power of the PNAA community. And I I remember um, being concerned about not having like enough volunteers, volunteers. and I remember um, getting like an email from like Catherine Rubio. Um, and she was like, oh, we have a lot of PNAA Southern California members who are really interested and heard about this event. And, you know, they rolled deep, like, <laughs> I think like six, six seven, seven people, like we didn't even need yes. that many. But but I said, just all everyone come just in case. And it was so helpful. And oh, one of the funnest parts was like, you know, I had never done anything like this before. A lot of the people involved, we don't really we haven't done anything like this before. And, and we just partnered with this local federally qualified health center. And so all of the all the boxes get rolled in from the the staff from the clinic, and we open up the boxes like, and I don't even really know what like what to do. And then I like turn around because I was going to go like get something else, and I turn around, and the PNAA members like you know I thought of them as all like oh like my titas and titos are over here, <laughs> they just start unpacking everything, and in like two minutes everything is set up perfectly, and it was like the best thing ever. And you know it just spoke to like the amazing power of like having community there and having so many groups there. And so I, I thought it was, a, it was a great success. Thank you.
So Dr. Ronson, this is going to be the last question for you. <laughs> what do you want to tell our listeners and viewers that we have not asked you? Oh, that's a, that's a wonderful question. I love that question. Um, we covered data disaggregation. We covered uh, the policy response. Um, you know, I, I think that it is going to continue to be really, really important that for the Philam community that we continue to communicate and engage with each other um, consistently. And that's that's what I have always loved about Filtra, that we have physicians there, we have PNAA members there, we have PhD students there. And I think if if people across the community continue to talk to each other and we talk to, you know, the policy people who 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 you know want to work in the administration, I think these are really, really important ways for, for all of us to, to continue to increase our impact. I, I know it's it's a it's a cliche to, to talk about, but um, you know there's there's that stereotype of crab mentality, um, you know, in the in the film community. And but but what I what I love about what how our community has responded to COVID is the complete opposite. We're always finding ways to help each other, boost each other, amplify each other's work. I mean, we see that with with groups like the Council of Young Filipinos Americans, CFAM. We see that in Filtra, PNAA. Everyone is 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 you know retweeting and amplifying each other's messages about how do we address COVID in our community? How do we prepare for the next major crisis? And how do we like push for this vision of like true holistic well-being for our community because we deserve it. You know, it's it's time for us to to stop saying that we don't deserve you know, wellness, you know, and we need to keep putting our heads down and working hard in this country. And sure, like that, that's important, but, but caring for each other and addressing these challenges is, is, is of paramount importance. And so that, that doesn't respond to, to a question, but it just kind of reflects how I'm feeling right now. Continuing to support, engage, lift and care for each other. Thank you very much, Dr. Carlos Irvin Oronce. And uh, I also want to thank our co-host, Mindy Ofiana, our director and producer, Rodney Cajudo, Caro Robles, PNAA Chair for Communications and Marketing, our advisor, PNAA Foundation President, Nancy Hoff, and our executive producers, PNAA President, Dr. Mary Joy Garcia Dia, and our PNAA Executive Director Carmina Bautista. Join us every Wednesday here on Rise Up. Until then, keep on rising. See you next week. This publication was made possible by Cooperative Agreement CDC RFA IP212106 from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of CDC HHS.